What real world backdrop or setting do most people envision when they think of fantasy? Usually it's castles, knights, lords, stone-walled cities, and so on. Most fantasy role players have a version of the Middle Ages, especially the High Middle Ages, as their default state. I think we do this largely out of habit and partially because we have trouble grasping a society that lacks so much of the dominating infrastructure that we swim in, like overarching governments, litigiousness, order, and so forth. That's all fine, of course, but we have a swath of largely untapped intermediary stages in between the Neolithic Age and the High Middle Ages that offers a rich, otherworldly, pre-modern feeling, which is sorely neglected. So relying on a little knowledge and a lot of rumination and postulation, I'll explore here a picture of the societal evolution to show the fertile realms where a fantasy setting can thrive without any kingdoms, cities, money, or nobles. Stone castles, walls, ironclad armies, and crowned kings did not appear overnight, nor without very good reason. Why did people labor to build and maintain walls around a city? Why were there even cities in the first place? Where did the notions of knights, peasants, kings, and taxes all come from? As I'm discussing here, there are many elements, but if I had to pick a single answer, it's violence, a perceived danger so real and overwhelming that the people adopted massive societal changes. So let's glance at what we know about the first scattered sprouts of civilization. The Neolithic Revolution, planting, crops, keeping livestock. Once people move from a Stone Age hunter and gatherer to farmer society, life becomes much more stable and populations rise. Imagine a land with communities just between 30 or 60 people who, for the first time probably, can remain in the same place for many years because the food is dependably at the back door. There's still a fear of famine, drought, blight, and monsters in the world, but infant survival and lifespans have increased. No one pretends to own the region. People establish villages and homesteads where they will, but there's no notion of crossing into another nation because nothing like nations or kingdoms exist. In fact, there are no other peoples to be found in this land. Most of the people are related to each other by blood, all at least by marriage somewhere. Neighboring villages, between two and five miles away, will also have many of their relations. The common tradition has the mid-teen years as an acceptable age for marriage. While a pair may have endured some disapproval for one reason or the other, by and large, youths are permitted to wed of their own accord. No one at this stage has the notion of dowries or of selling one's daughter for any gain. These people are, by our viewpoint, exceedingly superstitious. The world is vast, unknown, and unstable. They're convinced that different gods and spirits affect their lives and fear angering those beings lest monsters attack or starvation strangle them. 
Remember, they literally have no idea what's just a hundred miles away, and they rely on legends to inform their worldviews, legends that they take as real. While certainly more secure than in the Stone Age hunter-gatherer days, life is still focused on food, shelter, and safety. Everyone has to work for the good of the village, their family, a deeply enmeshed group of people bound together by blood, marriage, and toil. So only rarely will, will there be large-scale tensions developing between villages that erupt into actual violence at this stage. There are no laws in any formal sense, and certainly not in any written one, since writing does not yet exist. Instead, villages in a region will have shared customs bound up by whichever mythologies and random elements form them. These are all commonly accepted rules of life, using the most elementary thinking. If an issue is ever in need of adjudication, each village would have a small number of elders, respected grandparents, to make such a judgment. Crimes of magnitude would be rare, I believe, for people here are so deeply enmeshed with their villages, their relatives, their lifelong friends, that the notion of being shamed by, or even expelled from, their village would be horrifying. But surely heinous crimes would occasionally occur, and inevitably grave punishments would have to be handed out. No concept like imprisonment would exist for these people, but execution or banishment, which could easily mean death, would exist for these worst cases. Food, the creator of society. Food is the foundation of society. Only when it is stable enough to give a surplus does it evolve. Food surplus can save not only your own village, but your neighboring ones, and they in turn yours. Once this has happened for generations, assuming the land is fertile and safe, the population grows, and more fields are sowed and filled with more and more livestock. When the population of a village grows and stability lasts, a few inventions develop with it. Our minds naturally want to jump into the Bronze and Iron Ages from here, but remember that the remarkable discovery of ore and smelting and smithies doesn't have to follow for many thousands of years in a culture that is truly isolated from others who already have it. In fact, it's conceivable that they never discovered on their own. For the most part, the invention was spread to them by someone else. But things like stone mills, usually with an ox or a mule walking in a circle, is a very helpful invention. Instead of individuals having to grind the grain by hand, a village could gather their grain together and have the mill grind it for them far more efficiently. Additionally, once the notion of using oxen to drag plows occurs to someone, the annual yield of food increases. But at some point, the amazing discovery of iron ore and smelting may get made. A smithy greatly improves the quality of life for villages. Instead of just stone tools like stone-headed plows, actual iron-bladed plows can be made. Instead of heavy stone arrowheads, iron ones are made and attached to arrows for superior hunting. 
The rise of goods. The villages meet occasionally to aid each other and or to have summer and harvest celebrations together. Assuming that this culture is stable and growing, individuals will sometimes discover that they possess specific talents above their peers. Perhaps one person's clay pottery making actually becomes prized to the point where others choose to stop making their own and instead trade a few hens for one. They could make their own or could get one from their neighbor, but the society has evolved now to the first rudimentary stages of luxury, obtaining something that's not strictly necessary. This applies to all manner of things, tools, clothing, dyes, herbal concoction, mead, ale, you name it. What began centuries earlier as trading merely in animal skins, stonehead arrows, or food, has now evolved into what they consider luxury purchasing with food as the baseline currency. Remember that nothing like money exists at this stage. Food is the foundation. If that ever becomes endangered, all luxuries become meaningless. The evolution of the marketplace. Through this process, more widespread trade will naturally evolve, and with it, a dedicated marketplace. This is a central location, just a village, where people gather together in order to trade goods with each other. But there's still no such thing as money, merely trade in kind. At the onset, no one owns a store of goods. They simply trade what they have in surplus for what they want. With the passing generations, this village where the people went to trade, through some mixture of happenstance and habit, has slowly evolved into a dedicated market village, which encourages people to come from greater distances. The excitement of so many people gathered together leads to huge festivals and games, not to mention the desire for mates. After years of coming to the centrally located market village, people may establish themselves near this village to ply their prized trade or craft enough to make a living. Thus emerges the first tradespeople of this culture, those who do not need to hunt, farm, or forage in order to stay alive. Their goods are reliably sought after so that they will survive. They will not necessarily be wealthier than the others, but they are just as stable and likely happier for doing what they love. Therefore, people will begin choosing land near this market village as a place to live permanently. Other tradespeople may migrate here, seeing that they will have more opportunities to trade their goods. Assuming that metals and smelting have been discovered, the first non-goods currency can come into being. At first, there will be clumps of smelted copper, iron, or tin, for out of these come superior tools. All of this is what eventually leads to the creation of a town. Remember that without widespread violence, no one yet makes true weapons other than hunting ones. No armor certainly exists, no walls have been erected, and so forth. The law 
is still restricted to each village's rule, which is rudimentary. While this town would likely have more theft than any other single village due to the presence of such goods, some of which will be small and valuable enough to tempt the unscrupulous, crime remains infrequent because societal desperation is so low. When a society is stable and war is unheard of, few individuals are put into a situation where they alone are starving and must steal from someone with food in order to survive. If one person is starving, this means that the entire population is probably starving too. Also remember that stealing a pouch of coins is a lot easier to grab and then spend than stealing a sack of grain. When a society is in this stage, there's certainly nothing at all like a thieves guild. In fact, there's no group banditry since it requires a series of violent and desperate events to push men to those limits. Of course, there have always been crimes, crimes of passion and greed, but no band of thieves will exist in a society unless something drastic produces it. If a people can get to this stage and still have no invaders come to raid or conquer them, then they are in great shape. This is, in my opinion, the ideal state, which is inevitably lost far too quickly. The town will continue to slowly grow and villages are in better shape since many are linked together communally to help each other. This means even less starvation and therefore more population growth. No one has to pay taxes and there's no real threat of marauders or bandits. People can still largely be trusted to behave themselves since everyone knows each other. It would be terribly shameful to get caught stealing something, and it's not as if packing up and moving away is a realistic option. No village at this stage would have a paid guard. Even a small town doesn't need them. People simply protect themselves. This specific stage bears a striking resemblance to a land that most fantasy readers love, the Shire. No king, except the vague notion of some distant king far, far away. There's no standing army, no taxes, no draconian laws, no noble class, and so forth. But Tolkien fashioned it to work out logically. The hobbits were able to live in this peace only because they had the Dúnedain of Arnor guarding their borders. As we can see, when that protection was gone, their land was on the road to horrible changes. This lovely balance of stability, freedom, and peace has surely existed in our world countless times through the eons, perhaps lasting many generations, or perhaps it was ruined within a decade. This would be as close to paradise as we could hope for, but all good things end. Eventually, one of two things, and eventually both, will ruin this balance. The rise of one over the others. Someone within a society will eventually become more important than the others. Perhaps this begins by angrily reacting to someone else's slight or even injustice. 
It could be as simple as a moved border stone marking land ownership. Now that more people are living in close proximity, more conflicts will arise. Whatever started it, one family will try asserting dominance, and this can lead to violence. Perhaps a brawl actually led to death. Once this is observed, the notion of competition from this family seeps into the minds of the people. Given enough time, which could be decades or even centuries, through a mixture of elements, one man will be commonly accepted as the lord, chief, or headman, etc., who lives in the largest town where they do trade. This likely carries the undercurrent of either real or feared violence. He and his family vie with and try to replace the authority of the standard village elders in that town. Eventually, this lord imposes a tiny, at first anyway, trade tax, which could be a scoop of grain or a half dozen eggs, in order to come and trade in the marketplace town. This would be used to justify building wooden walls and eventually establishing the first market guards if thieving has repeatedly occurred. Given time, this lord and family becomes known in a radius as important and influential. Past the generations in this fashion, maybe even centuries, if the population continues to thrive, it will of course spread out and develop more towns because of trade. And the Lord, a descendant of the original Lord, has extended his dominance to the other towns. How much control and authority does this Lord have? Hardly any by our standards. The Lord is not someone that people must run to in order to make decisions or ask permissions to do things in their village. Any Lord at this stage who attempted to assert that kind of control would find that the population would quickly oust him. The Lord's family is the one that has more authority than anyone else in the towns, but their authority doesn't bleed over into personal and village life. Remember that at this stage, there's no army. There's no officials or officers or nobles. Aside from their tiny tax on trade in the towns, these lords, unless they're aggressive bullies, control nothing, and attempting to strong-arm people can quickly backfire on them. Villagers here don't consider themselves to be part of a nation or a civilization at all. I easily, naturally think of myself as being in Indiana in the USA. But while of course each village has a name, these villages simply think, this is our home and those around us are our neighbors. The lords and chiefs of the trading towns are known to them, but going to trade is just a small element of their lives, making those lords virtually irrelevant to most of them. 99% of the people are still living as they have for thousands of years, gathering food, creating and maintaining stability, and procreating. Violence from outsiders. Of course, 
Everything that I've described so far assumes that this culture has not been infiltrated by another very different one, which has already societally evolved past theirs. In our role-playing games, we can explain this by saying that the world is vast, many times the size of our own, or perhaps even endless. But within the larger region, similar lords will eventually arise, either through the same process or, as far more likely, the rumor of this first lord has reached the adjacent lands, and the idea of dominance eventually tempts someone into the same maneuver. Cultural ideas always spread, especially the ones serving greed. With the passing of centuries, the lands under the perceived dominance of one lord will interact with another's. This is unknown and or meaningless to the villagers themselves, but the avarice of lords can push them into violence. One way or another, raiding can begin, and regardless of how small scale it began, large-scale violence can ensue. Once this happens several times, the notion of a unified people grows stronger, for they are at odds with those other people, the evil ones. Frequency and degrees of violence vary, but when the scale is huge, the world changes for everyone. Large threats are the kingmakers. When these threats become real on a huge scale, a society either radically changes or is conquered and scattered. Life formerly had very little violence from other people, and now it becomes a very real and imminent reality because large groups of men are coming to kill and steal everything. Nightmarish. Weapons already exist for hunting, like bows and spears, the chopping of wood, axes and hatchets, and the building of things, and therefore stone hammers. Isolated people in a peaceful realm would not have invented a sword without reason. Usually a culture has to be attacked by someone using it, or encounter a sword by meeting a stranger from a distant evolved civilization. If the attacked civilization is sparsely populated, spread out and so forth, they may not survive this first attack. If a peaceful, tiny population of, say, 10 villages, totaling around 700 people, were to be attacked by even as few as 20 battle-trained, armed, and especially mounted men, the villagers could lose all of their possessions and many lives. Remember that the 10 villages are usually several miles away from each other and cannot quickly group up to defend themselves. Also remember that they are totally unprepared for this kind of violence. Battle-hardened, ruthless marauders with swords could easily kill a few men at a time. The real prize for invaders will be in the towns where the best goods can be stolen. If towns and villages survive this initial attack, the lords will usually rise to rally the people in defense. It is this dynamic which permanently changes their society. 
A.D. Britain's history shows us this clearly. 5th and 6th century Saxon, and again in 8th and 9th century Viking invasions, triggered drastic changes throughout the land. A true crisis exists, forcing them to either work together or be conquered or slain. Therefore, the existing lords become focal points of leadership, whether they're well-suited or not. At this point, everyone grabs whatever passes for a weapon, gathers together, and fights the invading force. Based on the size and strength of the invaders, a single town's consolidated force may defeat them or get them wiped out. In larger invasions, multiple neighboring lords may be forced to all work together, gathering their first real army. For the first time in their history, therefore, people from 20 or 50 miles away are united under a single cause and lord. Circumstances may lead to a sporadic repetition of this coordination for decades or even centuries. But ultimately, within this loose union of towns and lords, a single leader will emerge, a lord's lord, the first king. Note that this will only evolve if the threats of major violence, real or imagined, is pressing for the population. The natural state is for people to have their village life and autonomy, but if people believe that a king, along with the taxations, etc., which accompany him, is really needed to stay alive, they'll accept it. The word town comes from an old English word meaning enclosure, and now they earn their names for walls are built where none were needed before. Once this occurs, the town's power, and in tandem, the king's, grows, both practically and symbolically. As the generations pass, if the threats remain constant, the town's and king's power will continue to grow. The invaders don't have to come every year necessarily, but as long as marauders show up every few years and slaughter a village here or there, the belief in the need for a unified army, and therefore a king, will grow. Additionally, the old habit of your village being the place of your choosing, in the wild with no other villages in sight, gets hampered. Now everyone has learned that dwelling too far from the towns is dangerous. Therefore, as the threats rise, people, starting with survivors from destroyed villages, will relocate nearer to the walled towns, for this has become the only real hope in these desperate times. Safety in numbers is transforming this entire society. This further strengthens the kings. More people means more work, more trade, and more control for the king. The path to feudalism the old market towns will grow tenfold over the passing generations, with greater walls, more paid guards, more weapons, and more stink. More luxury goods are sold, and more precious metals are excavated, smelted, and used, and then sold. 
These cities are filled with places of entertainment and luxury for those who can pay. Thieving has become much more common, as does prostitution and violence. Many more decades may be needed to pass in this fashion until the notion of lords and kings is embedded within the society. If violent outsiders return, especially in large numbers, kings may extend their power in more permanent ways. Essentially, all of the people in this land consider themselves to be under the shadow of danger. They therefore accept the king's edict that a portion of every village and town's goods are to be given to the king, whether an attack is coming this year or not, whether the villages actually go to the markets or not. These taxes go towards the payment of full-time, seriously trained warriors who serve as the backbone of their army. They also pay for the large amount of metal weapons and armor needed to compete with the enemies in their world. Additionally, villages accept that every able-bodied man must answer the call when needed. Even if they must march away to fight in an area they've never even heard of before, the people have shifted into the paradigm of being in a kingdom. Many more years must pass in this fashion for the development of classes to be observed. While there were always people who possessed more than the others, now a very small number of wealthy elite stand apart. These were commonly blood relatives of the king, or rich merchant families who have grown significantly more wealthy by virtue of trade in the cities, or warrior families who distinguished themselves as superb victors of the battlefield. Under the new social structure, these nobles are treated with deference by the commoners. As time passes, the distance grows ever greater culminating in their legal superiority over the peasants. Ultimately, each king and his lords recognize the stunning amount of wealth and authority the people of the land have given them because of the threats, and they see no reason to let that end. Now, whether an army invades or not, everyone is habituated into taxation and obedience. The king is this distant, powerful figure who controls the land. The nobles have well-armed and armored warriors surrounding them. The villagers may come to hate them, but they become powerless to change things. This is their reality now, and they have no strong memory of their ancestors' independence. Well, these are my reflections and maybe even some wild conjectures about the ancient and very early Dark Age evolution. Leaving to the side a dozen but this and only if that caveats, those are the very broad strokes of how different stages of our civilizations evolve. Role players can use this to our advantage to create settings within those lost eras without defaulting to kingdoms as is our habit. 
we can choose any era and still enjoy a pre-modern world. In fact, why don't we commonly play in Neolithic periods? And what's wrong with an entire continent of just hunter-gatherers? Or just extremely Spartanly populated lands? All of these options are on the table for us, and they can be logically coherent by having stuck a pin on the evolutionary timeline someplace other than in the high medieval setting. I think this offers us some rich elements. Just one example, think of all the times that a king or some powerful noble brought in the PCs with the I've got a job for you that's very dangerous, all while surrounded by their 20 plate-clad warriors. Do they really need us? But think of a land with no king, no warlord, or no armies whatsoever. Now, who is going to take care of the strange night beasts attacking those villages? You. It has to be you, because there is simply no one else to do it. For a host of other reasons, we can have new and interesting campaigns when the land has no king or warlord who is or should be taking care of the problems. The PCs have no one to turn to for help, no stable fortress of supplies and warriors. Using a more primitive setting puts the focus more heavily on the actions of the PCs, and I think this strengthens their feeling of relevance in that world.